As you're continuing in your teaching series on the Gospel of Mark, the story and the way of Jesus, one of the things that Dave called me to, to think about, and that it's true, is that the way and kingdom of Jesus isn't just a past truth that we're founded on, although it really is. It's not merely a future hope, although it is a glorious future hope, the kingdom of God. It is at work now, right here, as we sung, as we prayed, Holy Spirit here, that is the power of God to build his kingdom in the church and in your life. We pray that that's happening today as we turn to Jesus and his word. Last week, Ruthie taught on the feeding of the 5,000. Such a good word. I listened to that word and just was blessed by it. And she called the church reality to choose between feasting on Herod's meal, what you're familiar with, or Jesus and his feast, to surrender to him, to get your eyes off of what is just before you to see that Jesus is really at work behind the scenes. And today, this passage is right on the heels of that miracle, right to another one. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. And let me read that for us and then pray as we get into his word. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we see that there is an abundance of your provision in the feeding. I pray that you would provide abundantly as your word gets into the deepest part of our marrow, to the deepest part of who we are, that we would be filled with joy of knowing you, filled with all that you have for us, the good plans you have for us. Father, there's a hard work when it comes to this word, though, just like the disciples, just like us, Even for those of us who profess that you are Lord, there are parts of our heart that maybe still are hard or jaded. I pray that you would, by your spirit, free us. Replace, as you promise in your word to Ezekiel, our hearts of stone. Make us soft towards your will and your plans and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up outside of Detroit, and so I consider my home sports teams still back there primarily, because that's where all the crucial sports teams discipleship happens, is when you are a child and you develop love for those home teams. And many of you probably still have home teams, if you've moved to San Francisco, that are back where you move from different parts of the country. 
whenever I hang out with pastors of San Francisco, especially new pastors who come here to plant churches, they already are cheering for Bay Area teams, and I confess I'm often very judgmental. How could they change their allegiances so quickly? I mean, didn't they just move from Chicago? How can they be cheering for the 49ers or the Giants? And I judge them over time. I judge them in my heart, I really do. I learned over time, though, they're probably just better missionaries than I am. They're contextual. They're trying to become like the people around them. It was only in 2021, last year, that I bought my first Giants gear. I finally bought a Giants hat, right? And I couldn't do this because I I was, as I said, I'm from Detroit. And so 2012, I was a pastor here. And my church is primarily longtime San Franciscans. And I was the only fan in 2012. After that first game, my heart just dropped. And I could, I just, I'm reeling in many ways still from that year. I'm watching this Super Bowl later today with a little more attention to the game, even though there's not a home team, my, my home team from Detroit or the Niners in it, because Matt Stafford, the current quarterback for the LA Rams, used to be the Lions quarterback from 2009 to 2020. He's a great QB. And he played with one of the best wide receivers of all time, Calvin Johnson. Megatron, he's a Hall of Famer. And they were amazing together. They made it to the playoffs two times, and they broke many records together. They were very fun to watch when they played together. And even though they made it to the playoffs, even though they had winning seasons, those rare times, even when they made it to the playoffs, real fans of the Detroit Lions know They're going to (laughs) lose. Because the Lions lose. It's what we expect. It's almost a badge of honor. We have the record of having a zero-win season. Zero and 16. And so the joke is, you you know how the Lions count to 16? Zero, one. Zero, two. Zero, three. All the way to 16. You could be amazed. There will be years where they were great But even if they made it far, even if they made it to the Super Bowl, I would expect them to lose. It's what you come to expect. There's a very big difference between amazement and belief. And that's at the heart of this passage in Mark's gospel today. You can be amazed by someone and not actually believe because your expectations have not really changed what you think they're going to do, what they, which who you think they are hasn't really changed. Your perception of them has stayed the same. This passage is famous because it carries the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. But the point of the miracle isn't that miracle in and of itself. It's really about Jesus and who we expect him to be, his identity. And that's the question I hope that rings in your heart today. Whether you are still trying to discover who Jesus is or you're someone who's been following Jesus for the last 50 years, who are you expecting Jesus to be? Because how you see him determines everything. How you live, how you spend your money, what you think the Christian life is all about, how you relate to other people, what you think the kingdom is about determines, is determined by who you see Jesus to be. As we make our way through this passage, I hope that question brings you into intimacy with Jesus. Who do you expect him to be? Because Mark shows us 
He's not who the crowds expect him to be. He's not who the even disciples who have close access to Jesus. He's not even who the disciples expect him to be. Let's look again at the first few verses of Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 47. I'll read it for us. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. If you've been reading carefully the Gospel of Mark as you're going through this series, you'll see one of the often repeated words that Mark uses to kind of move along his gospel is the word immediately. It's one of his favorite words. Mark's gospel moves along with great pace and with great urgency. It focuses primarily on the actions of Jesus, a little less on the actual content of Jesus' teaching. Mark is like the Twitter of the gospel writers. He's very quick. Luke would be like the New England Journal of Medicine. Matthew would be the Harvard Law Review. John is like a collection of love letters to a close friend. Mark is fast. It goes immediately. After the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus dismisses his disciples so that he can disperse the crowd. And he goes alone to pray. This is one of three times that Jesus goes alone to pray in Mark's gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 35... And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. That was coming after a season of great, successful ministry. Jumping to the end of the gospel, chapter 14, in the garden, and he went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So these intentional focuses on Jesus' prayer are teaching us something. He goes alone to pray after success in ministry. In chapter 1, he goes alone to pray after success of feeding 5,000, more than 5,000, because we know there's men, women, and children there, maybe fifteen to 25,000 people there. And he also goes alone to pray at the moment of his hardest moments of ministry, the heaviest part of his ministry. And each time that Jesus goes alone to pray, he certainly is trying to commune, have intimacy with the Father, but specifically what he wants to hear from his Father in each one of these moments where he goes alone to pray is he needs the Father to remind him. He needs to steal his heart to be the kind of king, to be the kind of Messiah God had sent him to be, to be the kind of ruler, to be the kind of savior that the world really needs. Maybe not what they expected. After the feeding of the 5,000, there's a temptation there, right? He has fame now. He has attention. 15 to 25,000 people are there wanting to hear from him, wanting to be led by him. John's gospel account actually gives us more detail of why Jesus left immediately after this miracle. John tells us they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Because seeing Jesus' miracles, the people expected and they wanted Jesus to be a military leader, to lead a charge against Rome who was oppressing them. They wanted him to become a political leader, to lead them in the ways of their nation. They wanted an economic leader to provide for their needs. He could fix their problems. He's demonstrated that. He could meet their needs. He loved them. And if he stopped there, 
and allowed them to make him king, he would have certainly been a great king. He could have set up an earthly kingdom right there, the kind of kingdom that would have been significant and had blessing to all the people there, but Jesus knew that wasn't the Father's will. He knew that kind of kingdom, as great as it could be from our expectations, wasn't enough. It would be short-lived. This kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to rule over, that he's going to be king, isn't the kind of kingdom where he rules by the might of an army. He could have had an army there, maybe 15, 25,000 people. It's not going to be led by the strength of an Israel, Israelite national GDP. He's going to be the kind of king, as Mark shows us throughout this gospel, who goes to suffering and the cross because actually that is where a greater king and greater kingdom lies. It's not a coincidence that the three times Jesus goes alone to pray that he's either facing suffering in Mark chapter 14 or after the greatest successes of earthly ministry. He prays because he wants to be the kind of king the Father wants him to be, not the kind that the crowd expects him to be. I think this has a lot to say to us about lessons we can learn. It says a lot to how we should approach success. If Jesus is praying in the moment of success, I think this is where we need to be very cautious of success. It's very subtle but very dangerous that we can build, even in the name of Jesus, our own kingdoms. Even in the name of Jesus, we can build the kingdom of Joey. You could build the kingdom of the name of your church, reality. You could do all of that in a way that's actually void of Jesus. I think Jesus is showing us as he draws away to be wary of that, to be focused on the Father's will. If Jesus needed to focus his heart in his mission, in the face of success, by drawing away through prayer, how much more should we need to be weary of our own hearts when success lands in our life? See, we need to guard ourselves from jadedness and hardness when trials come and they test our hearts. But maybe we need to also learn that we need to guard our hearts when successes are happening in your life because they actually may be used to draw you further away from the Father's will. Another lesson here is, who do you expect Jesus to be? That's the main question, right? What kind of kingdom do you expect him to establish? Because if we're honest, many of us want him to be the kind of king who provides all that we need, determined by what we think is best for our lives. We want a kingdom where we're on top. But the problem as you'll see throughout the New Testament, is that our wants are actually not too much. They're way too small. It's not that we want too much of Jesus. We want too little of him when we want him just to fix what's right here before us. See, Jesus doesn't intend just to fill our stomachs temporarily, but forever. We will feast in heaven forever. So when I said I like cooking, but I like eating more there, I'm so happy that there's feasting in heaven. <laughs> you know, there's no fasting in heaven. <laughs> not, not to say fasting is not good. It is good for us here. And we should, I need to practice fasting some more. 
but feasting is the way of heaven. And we don't want enough. That's the problem. Jesus doesn't intend to just merely make your life successful right here and now because that's too short. He's about bringing us into an everlasting kingdom. Who do you expect Jesus to be? Go on in the story. He now intimately deals with a circumstance of the disciples and he displays his power through this miracle of walking on the water in verses 48 to 50. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, torturously, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. And they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He sends his disciples out so he can disperse the crowd. And notice, he, Jesus, is the one who puts them in the boat. He is the one who puts them into across the sea, directly into a, a storm with strong winds. And he put them in through this storm in the midst of it, not as an act of discipline, not because he didn't know that the storm was coming, but because of his grace, he wants to disciple them. You can see it this way. Jesus sent them into the midst of difficulty, painful sea navigation, because they wouldn't ever choose it. And in God's love, he puts them in the midst of it to produce in them something they would never be able to get to on their own. Something we need to learn about grace. I need to, I need to learn about grace is it comes sometimes very gently, but sometimes it comes very uncomfortably. He puts them in that place as an act of grace to disciple them, to draw out of them something they would never have learned on their own. And we do this as parents, don't you? Right? If you have parents, or you are parents of young kids, or you take care of your friends' young kids, you see little kids learning all kinds of things. And they need to be stretched and challenged. My young one, is learning more difficult math. In fact, even though she's in second grade, she had this math problem yesterday she was trying to do. We're about to go on vacation, so her teacher gave us way too much homework to do. She's trying to get as much done so we can enjoy vacation. And she's doing just, you know, subtraction of triple digits. And she's like, you know, my teacher told me not to ask you for help on this because you won't know how to do it. <laughs> and I looked at it and I was like, I don't know how to do this because you know what's crazy now? They're teaching kids math with this, like, these two lines and I'm like, I don't even know what you're doing. I just put the numbers there and I went up and down. I'm like, what are you doing in math now? And she just asked us for help constantly. I'm like, no, you need to learn this. I'm not gonna, first of all, I can't do your math problem, but also you need to get it wrong so you learn whether it's riding a bike or swimming. We, we do this with our kids and Jesus loves his disciples way too much to leave them exactly where they are. He certainly loves us where we are. He meets us in our brokenness, in our place of need. He loves you way too much to leave you there. See, the very challenge you may be facing right now in your life, health issues, academic pursuits, your career, your relationship, it actually may not be evidence of the absence of God, although that's our first gut feeling. It's actually maybe the evidence of God and his grace putting you into an uncomfortable place to bring out of you what he needs 
to see in your life, and he loves you. I got to my church almost 15 years ago in the midst of the church's most difficult years of its existence. Since the church was a church plant from Chinatown over 40 years ago, and I got there in around year 20, and it was experiencing, or maybe 25, and experiencing some of the most difficult seasons, staff departures, people mistrusting leadership, arguments were a regular part of the church life. I was young, new to ministry, new to San Francisco, and I came looking for a mentor who just left within the first six months of my time there, leaving the place and what I felt like was a wreck, and I wanted to leave. Like, I just got here. This is not what I expected, God. And in God's grace, I didn't. And I realized in the midst of that difficult season, and it lasted quite a long time, it was in that season God showed me who he was and what I needed to see him as. And he made me the kind of leader I am. And he brought into my life things that I needed to learn in the midst of that. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you expect him to just bring you right out of it. Maybe you need to see he can put you in a place of uncomfortable grace to develop in you what he needs to develop in you. What did the disciples need to learn, though? And they need to learn, and they constantly need to learn throughout this gospel, who Jesus really is, because he's not who they expect him to be. As Jesus is praying, he sees them struggling to make it across. It's a fourth watch, and the Romans divided the night watch into four watches, and so this is somewhere between 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning, and so you imagine they've been navigating this storm all night. They're exhausted. They're afraid. Now they see someone who's walking on the water, and they're terrified. Now, when you read that Jesus was walking on the sea, you read scholarship on this, you read commentaries, you read people writing about it, post the Enlightenment, and everyone spends a ton of time trying to explain how this miracle happened. I mean, he was walking on a sandbar. He was unsure it was an optical illusion because that's what we need to understand as post-Enlightenment people, the reliability, the historicity of the miracles, and that's important to understand and try and grasp as best as we can, but also we need to have a category for miracles. You notice the gospel writers never spend much time trying to defend that this happened. Because as they wrote this, as the oral tradition shared this, because it was close enough to the time of Jesus, if they shared this and it didn't happen, tons of people could have said it. Thousands of people saw Jesus do things. They could have just refuted it. They could have just said, well, what you're writing, Mark, this didn't really happen. Because the issue wasn't the miracles and them happening. The issue for them, the issue still for us, is what do they mean? The disciples don't expect to see anyone walking on the water. They think it's a ghost, a phantasma, a phantom. And understandably, they freak out. And in verse 48, it's a very weird phrase there. Jesus, as he's walking on the sea, as he's approaching them, he, it says he meant to pass by them. And that seems strange to us at first read. It almost feels humorous. I mean, did he mean to kind of sneak up on them, kind of come to the other side of the boat and say, ha or have you ever had that experience? I just had this experience yesterday. You're like, go, I was at Target yesterday, and you go to someone, and that person was wearing a red sweatshirt, and hey, can you help me find the toiletries? I'm new to this Target. And like, dude, I don't work here. <laughs> and then you see them later, and you're like, you, I want to go the other way. You want to pass by them. You want to avoid them. Or you wave to someone, or maybe someone's waving at you, and you wave back, and 
that they're waving to the person behind you and you're like, this is weird. And you see them later, you, don't, you just want to avoid them. I actually went up to someone once and I saw, it wasn't like I saw them from behind, I saw them from the front and I went up to them and I said their name and it was wrong and I gave them a hug and it was the wrong person because I hadn't seen them in so long and you just want to avoid them. That's not what, it seems humorous. So you read, he's going to them to help them so why would it say he wants to pass by them? This is very purposeful language. This word for pass by in the New Testament, New Testament is written in Greek, Old Testament in Hebrew, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, they have the same word only used three times in the Old Testament. And if you look at them, you begin to understand why Mark chose the word pass by. I'll look at a couple of them with you. In Exodus 33, God, the Lord, Yahweh, has brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He brings them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And that order is important. One thing you should always remember about the Exodus, if anything I hope that you can remember today, even though it's about Mark, hopefully you remember this, it's God has always acted upon grace. Old Testament, New Testament is always grace because you realize in the Old Testament, God brought them out of Egypt, not because they obeyed the law and like, man, you guys did a really good job and I'm going to save you. No, he saved them and then he gave them the law. That order of the gospel is always true wherever you look. He loved them and then he has said, here, here's how you live as my people. But they rebel. They make a golden calf, you know, that terrible, sad moment. And in God's holiness, He's a perfect, holy judge as well as a perfect, loving God. And so he has to respond. But Moses intercedes. And in that very intimate conversation and prayer, God asks, Moses asks God, I, I, want, I need you. I don't just need stuff from you. I need you. I need your fullness. I need your glory, God. And I'm going to read a lengthy part, but follow with me. Exodus 33, 18 to 22. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, same word in Mark, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. To Moses, God can't fully reveal himself. He can't show his face because no one, no person can bear it. We would be overwhelmed. We'd be incinerated by God's amazing glory so God covers him. He gets a glimpse. He gets the, the backside of God as God covers him with his hand. And then in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6 is one of the most repeated phrases in the Old Testament. Who God is, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, he is fully just. But he has to pass by. Moses can only get a small glimpse in the Exodus. Same word in Mark 6. Jesus meant to pass by. Are you starting to see? In Jesus, he's revealing 
who he is. He's showing fully what Moses only got to see a little bit of. He's showing all of who God is. He's showing them what only Moses could only get a tiny glimpse of. The disciples are now getting full access to what we get full access to. Another place that this word pass by is used is in Job. In Job chapter 9, he's kind of arguing with, I wouldn't call them friends actually if you read the book of Job. They're really just criticizing him the entire time. It's a lot of back and forth there. Maybe you feel that way today. Um, people who are supposed to love you and they're just kind of criticizing your theology, everything. But Job feels like that. Um, Job chapter 9, verse 2, and then I'm going to read verses 5 to 11. Follow along. Just pay attention. See how glorious this word passed by is as you see the Old Testament. Truly, I know that it is so. But, who, but how can a man be in the right before God? So he's, they're challenging because they're saying, well, this judgment on you, Job, it must have happened because you were not holy. You must have done something wrong. That's the argument back and forth. And he says, well, how can any of us be right? And then he goes on to describe God. He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea, who made the bear on Orion, he's looking at the stars now from the waters to the sea, the plates and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me. But notice what he says. And I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. So he knows about the glory of God, but he can't see it. He doesn't have access to it. That connection also rings forward as Mark chooses this phrase, passes by. Did you hear that in Job? He who tramples on the sea? What is Jesus doing? Walking on the water. It's the same words. For Job, though, he can't see God. He can't perceive him. And God, Jesus, as he's walking towards his disciples, he says, I'm passing by because I'm going to reveal all of my glory to you. Every bit of it, that he is God. He's not doing a cool party trick. Wow, you can do something amazing. He's showing them. He's nothing less than the Lord. The eternal God Come as man. He's setting up the scene. If you notice the parallels here in Moses, you see the parallels? Moses provided, or God provided through Moses, manna, the bread in chapter 6, and now he's going up to a mountain to pray. That's Mount Sinai. He's showing them. You guys think Moses is great, and the Israelites thought Moses was a great leader. No one has ever come as great as Moses. I'm greater. I was before Moses. And he confirms all this. If, If this kind of illusion of pass by isn't enough. Jesus just makes it crystal clear what he says in verse 50. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. You translate that, it also could be I am. The name of God that the Lord gave to Moses when he was asking, who do I, who, who, what name do I give when people ask who sent me? I am who I am. Jesus just says here, it is I. Jesus blows away 
all of their categories. All of our categories. He doesn't conform to the crowd's expectations. He doesn't conform to the disciples' expectations because he's God. Who do you expect Jesus to be? Here is the I am. And that's not just good doctrine to know. If he's God, he's not just a provider of bread. He is the bread of life. He's not just someone who can do miracles. He makes everything He can remake everything new. He's not just a good teacher with good moral lessons who teaches truth and how to be good, although he is someone who teaches what it means to be good. He is holy himself. He is truth himself. If Jesus is just a rabbi, a miracle worker, just a provider, you can dabble a little bit in spirituality. You can give a little bit of yourself, and then that would kind of make do. But if he's God... You need to give him everything. So even in the pre-service prayer, do you see those words I mentioned at the beginning, that word surrender? It is ringing right now. Surrender, because he's God. If Jesus is God, you know worship, what we just done in that amazing time of singing, it isn't appeasing him. It isn't trying to manipulate him to get him to pay attention to you because he knows you. You sing and you give of your life because he actually is worthy. He is, Amen. Let's go on to the story, and it's a little bit heartbreaking after this amazing experience. Look at verses 51 to 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Disciples don't get it. They're astounded, which may seem like a great word, but it's actually not a great word because it's constantly used the people who are on the outside of being intimate with Jesus. The crowds were astounded. They were amazed, but he didn't believe. Just like I'd be amazed by Matt Stafford when he was in the Lions, but I would never believe they would win. <laughs> they were amazed, but they didn't believe because their expectations still haven't changed. They didn't see Jesus who he was presenting himself to be. They wanted Jesus to conform to their expectations. Even though the center of this account is really on the miracle of walking on the water, this part, verses 51 to 52, is actually the most stunning to me. I mean, think about the disciples at this point. This is the second time they've seen Jesus do amazing things on the sea, right? Chapter 4, you see him calm the sea, and he was falling asleep. So actually, if I was one of the disciples, I would never get into a boat unless Jesus was there, and he was wide awake, because otherwise something's going to happen on the sea. But they should have learned at this point. Jesus, if you're on the sea and something's going wrong, Jesus will handle this because they saw it. But think about all the things. They saw unclean spirits healed. Simon's mother-in-law healed. Demons falling down. He calms a storm. He, he, he sends out a legion of demons. He heals a bleeding woman who he doesn't even tend to. She just barely touches the tassels. He heals Jairus' daughter. He feeds 5,000 with a mere measly bit of leftovers or minimal provisions. But their hearts were hardened. I kind of want to reach, just like maybe you feel this way, into Scripture and yell at them and like, wake up! You guys have, haven't you seen all of this? And you look at the story and you, you think to yourself, I think to myself, you know, if I saw Jesus walking on the water, I would believe But you know, we, we, we can't judge the disciples like that. You know, if Jesus came today Again, this is hypothetical, so please don't tweet this out of context. I'm not 
saying something weird, I, although it is weird. If Jesus came today, walked on ocean beach, we went out there, and we saw, instead of baptisms today, we did ocean beach baptisms. You saw Jesus walking on the water, and people would be astounded. People wouldn't be able to deny, at least who saw it, people would take videos of this and say, this is amazing, but you know, many people who see this still would not believe. Right? Because miracles aren't enough. You see this regularly throughout Jesus' ministry. Full bellies, calm seas aren't enough because the greatest problem isn't behavioral. The greatest problem isn't your circumstances coming upon you. Your greatest need between you and the Lord of Lords is your hard heart. The greatest need that we have is a transformation at the deepest part of who we are. And Jesus is beginning to unearth what Ezekiel promised. Ezekiel promised he would, that someone, that God would, through someone, give us a new heart. He would remove hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, vulnerable to the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, and you'll see this, and stay with church as you're going through the book of Mark, because you'll miss this if you don't read it and look at this. Then you know the good news is, Jesus didn't just walk on water. You know what else he walked? He walked a painful, slow path to Golgotha, a place of a skull, carrying his cross. And a cross was meant for criminals. He didn't commit any crimes. If you look at the trial very carefully, he committed no crimes. They couldn't find a way to get him, so they had to make one up. But because he would bear our crimes, our rebellion, our rejection of God, because he was dealing with the heart. Jesus reaches out to his disciples like he's reaching out today through his word with an invitation to come to the I am who can trample on water and can trample the grave. Some of you are thinking, as you hear the gospel preached here, man, I don't deserve it. I'm, I'm too messed up. My life is too in ruins. I mean, how can he accept me? I know what, I'm very fully aware of what I've done. But you know what's great about the book of Mark? It is a book about messed up disciples. And it highlights the grace of Jesus. You know, notice what else is good news here? Jesus didn't wait until the disciples got on shore. He went out to them in the midst of the storm, just like he is reaching out to you. He does it in the middle of a storm, which means some of you in the great time of painful, in other words, painful, torturous there in the text. Some of you are in the midst of a painful, torturous moment of great discouragement, distress, and Jesus is coming to you in the midst of that. Maybe just like these disciples, you're up at that fourth watch. You're lying awake at 3 to 6 a.m. because worry dominates your heart, and Jesus is coming to you today, right now, as we invited the Holy Spirit, he is here. Jesus didn't get frustrated with his disciples. You notice, I mean, think about it. I want to get frustrated with the disciples. I mean, look at all the examples. Jesus doesn't get mad or frustrated with you, no matter how many times you missed it, no matter how many times you heard the gospel and you rejected it. Jesus, you know what he says to them? Take heart. Do not be afraid. You know, that's the most repeated command in the Bible, do not be afraid. And he says, I am here. My little girls wake up from a bad dream. I go to them and I say, it's 
it's okay. Daddy's here. I'm here. And I hold them and I remind them, I'm here. I don't give them a lecture on how dreams work and how it's illogical to be afraid of monsters. <laughs> I don't preach to them, man, are you not trusting God enough? Are you not trusting me? I'm here. And Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, is saying to you, I'm here. I'm here. We don't need to fear because he's conquered the world. We have peace because he is peace and he accomplished peace, not just walking on water, but walking to the cross, walking out of the grave. Who do you expect Jesus to be? I pray that the spirit would enlarge your vision, your understanding that Jesus is much better, much greater than you can ever imagine. Would you pray with me? Would you take a moment, not even to say anything, but just allow the spirit to draw you into the presence of the I am. Holy Spirit, would you just say those words to my friends who are hearing this? Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. And may you minister to their hearts and may you transform our hearts so we would see how full our lives could be with you if we surrender. Amen. Amen.